Hi, my name is Lauren Gillespie. I am currently a third-year emergency medicine resident at University of Cincinnati. Um, and I'm happy to have the chance to discuss a relatively recently published paper regarding fluid management in critically ill patients with sepsis-induced hypotension, um, which is uh, appropriately named the CLOVERS trial. So just to kind of start out, reminding us why we care about this in the emergency department, um, we all frequently see patients with sepsis, in particular severe sepsis and sepsis, septic shock. Um, so this is a pretty frequent thing that we see in the emergency department, and there's been quite a bit of controversy in the last couple of years regarding type of fluid management for these patients, and then kind of quite a bit of controversy regarding use of early vasopressors versus more liberal fluid administration and early treatment for these patients based off of mechanisms associated with sepsis, including decreased SVR associated with the significant inflammatory processes and in consideration of supporting cardiac output in the natural state of the different physiology of different patients. So getting a little bit more into the study, the clinical question at baseline and kind of bottom line was, for patients with sepsis-induced hypotension, does a restrictive fluid strategy with early vasopressor usage compared to liberal fluid strategy result in lower mortality before discharge by day 90? And day 90 is something um, that came out of a prior study that was done in, I believe it was June of 2022, the, the classic trial, which used a similar endpoint, lower mortality by uh, discharge uh, day 90. So a little bit of background, um, going into sort of the history behind this briefly, because we don't have enough time to go into the full details and all of the papers that sort of correlate with this one. But the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines recommended the use of large volumes of fluid, um, generally 30 mLs per kilo um, of the patient's body weight, over the first three hours during the initial resuscitation of a patient with septic shock. This is not necessarily based on a large and broad base of evidence, and is a pretty significant amount of fluid depending on the size of our patients. Um, so it's an important thing to kind of reconsider when we're evaluating these patients and starting that initial resuscitation. There was um, also a relatively recent trial we foreshadowed or alluded to a couple minutes ago, the 2022 classic trial um, that essentially mirrored some of the results that we'll discuss today in the CLOVERS trial, which is there is ultimately no difference in 90-day mortality comparing restrictive versus more liberal fluid or rather standard of care um, mechanism for treating septic shock in patients, but this is more in the ICU as opposed to emergency department patient populations. So a little bit of something to consider, but um, it's important to know that we have um, another study that sort of corroborates our results that we'll discuss from the CLOVERS trial today. So from a design standpoint, this was, um, from a mechanics uh, perspective, a multi-center, randomized, unblinded, superiority trial at 60 different U.S. centers. This was conducted uh, during a pretty interesting time uh, in the last couple of years between 2018 and 2022, which uh, I think we all uh, are intimately familiar with the changes in the medical landscape and sort of, uh, you know, infectious landscape thanks to COVID-19 over the last couple of years. So it was an interesting time to be doing research. Um, and as part of the PEDAL network, which is the Prevention and Early Treatment of Acute Lung Injury Network. Um, in terms of how patients were randomized and how things were otherwise set up, um, they were assigned in a one-to-one -one manner, and this was either to a liberal fluid strategy or to a restrictive fluid strategy. And the randomization was conducted by a, a web-based system, and then there's individual stratification by trial site as well. 
Um, when it comes to the protocol, there were a couple changes. The, the main one occurred in October of 2019. They did make one modification, which we'll talk about a little bit more in detail later, um, that ultimately didn't seem to impact the results of the study significantly. Um, but they made a modification to be able to allow de-escalation of uh, large volume fluid administration based on certain endpoints. Um, so there was a little bit of a change in the protocol over time as well. Uniquely, the study was stopped actually at the second interim analysis. Um, there was futility determined at that point in time since there were no significant uh, differences between the two groups. There weren't any significant adverse uh, events or concerns for harm from the Data Safety, safety Monitoring Board. Uh, but given this, they actually stopped the trial early, so they didn't end up with the full patient population that they had initially planned uh, to obtain. There was informed consent for all these patients, of course, and then protocol adherence was um, also monitored for the first 300 patients, and then subsequently in 10% during the remainder of the trial, and this was all randomly sampled, and actual protocol adherence was excellent, um, which we'll talk a little bit about later, so uh, definitely accomplished what they were intending to from that standpoint. Powers calculated uh, based off of mortality that actually is a little bit lower than some of the, uh, the quoted studies for mortality in septic shock. They were assuming baseline mortality of about 15%, and they were looking for an absolute difference about 4.5% in, in the restrictive fluid group. Um, certain studies have quoted anywhere between 15 to 30%, uh, lots of variation there, but 15 to 30% mortality. So they were looking for um, a patient population that was maybe a little bit less sick compared to what we would anticipate based off of, or that's different patient population than um, what we consider, you know, maybe a little bit more common in uh, septic shock in terms of mortality rates. 2,320 patients were needed to have 90% power at a significance level of 0.05. And their statistical plan, at least for their primary outcome, um, they were using Kaplan-Meier point estimates. So when it comes to the patient population and inclusion criteria, they included non-pregnant adult patients. Uh, interestingly, their definition for inclusion based off of the pathology was suspected or confirmed infection, um, which they defined as administration or planned administration of antibiotic agents and sepsis-induced hypotension with a blood pressure, uh, systolic blood pressure less than 100 uh, millimeters of mercury after one liter or greater of IV fluid. Exclusion criteria uh, were a little bit more extensive or more specific. Um, they had to exclude patients that had uh, four hours since meeting the inclusion criteria for sepsis-induced hypotension. So those patients could not be included in the study due to that time duration and kind of lead duration. Uh, patients that had presented uh, to the hospital greater than 24 hours could not subsequently be included in this study. If they had gotten more than three liters of IV fluid pre-hospital or by EMS or through an outside hospital, wherever they come, came from initially, um, they were excluded from the study given the baseline fluid administration. And if they had no ability to obtain informed consent naturally, and if the patient seemed grossly fluid overloaded to start out, they were immediately excluded from the study as well, which is an important consideration when we talk about how we're going to treat these patients in the future uh, or consider treating these patients in the future based off of the literature. And then if they had severe volume depletion that was suspected from non-sepsis causes, so you know a patient that comes in that looks severely hypovolemic, has been down for a couple days, ends up having a sodium of 180, um, that patient would probably be excluded from the study just based off of what they described in their exclusion criteria. For interventions, there were two separate groups, as we had mentioned. There was a restrictive group, which we'll define further, and then there was a liberal group. 
So the restrictive group um, was a patient population in treatment um, for patients that had systolic blood pressures less than 90, MAPS less than 65, after receiving an initial between one and three liters of crystalloid. So for the restrictive group, the intervention involved giving up to two liters of fluid boluses, including the pre-randomization fluids at the discretion of the clinician. Following this, if there is persistent evidence of hypoperfusion or hypotension, rather, more specifically, um, given that MAP was less than 65 or the systolic blood pressure was less than 90, then there is initiation of vasopressors, and typically norepinephrine was the initial vasopressor of choice. And then the end goals were a MAP greater than 65. This was typically infused peripherally initially, and there were um, very few events um, or concerns regarding extravasation or significant um, tissue harm in the setting of peripheral um, catheter use for initiation of vasopressors, which was an interesting finding, an important finding for the study when we um, think about how we're going to initially initiate these vasopressors in the emergency department and communicating with our colleagues who maybe have a little bit more of the practice pattern of inserting central lines earlier. Um, this will serve as a little bit of uh, augmentation for that discussion. Uh, but they uh, require that these peripheral catheters were a 20 gauge and larger. And the initial vasopressor, as we mentioned, was norepinephrine. However, the second typically ended up being epinephrine rather than vasopressin. Once the MAP, uh, the mean arterial pressure was in target, then fluids were limited. The rescue fluids were also an option for this group. Um, so they had very specific criteria for when, after initiating vasopressors, you could actually consider giving fluid, um, which was based off of a couple different things, which were severe hypotension with a systolic less than 70, a mean arterial pressure less than 50. If they had persistent hypotension or refractory hypotension on norepinephrine greater than 20 micrograms per minute or the equivalent of a different presser, if the lactate was greater than 4 millimoles per liter and increasing after two hours of initial therapy, if they had sinus uh, tachycardia or sinus heart rate that was greater than 130 for 15 minutes, or if they had echocardiographic evidence or hemodynamic evidence of extreme hypovolemia, as we sort of alluded to earlier, or if this was just in general from a subjective standpoint felt to be in the best interest of the treating team. So going back to this, just to kind of uh, summarize our restrictive fluid group, um, all bolus and maintenance fluids were ceased, um, and then up to two liter fluid boluses were allowed, including the pre-randomization fluids at the discretion of the clinician. And then you... Uh, taper into the category of consideration um, of the rescue fluids as needed, but otherwise you're initiating your levofed initially, and then uh, your second presser is needed for your hemodynamic goals. Secondarily, the liberal group um, was a little bit of a different approach, and this was our comparison for primary fluid administration, but also had a rescue group. So maintenance fluids were halted. Um, they were able to prescribe two liters at randomization to be completed within the first 180 minutes of randomization. And then a second liter can be withheld if volume replete or appears euvolemic following clinical assessment after that first liter. And then their rescue group involved um, indications including a mean arterial pressure less than 65, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, a lactate greater than 4, and increasing and they also add a couple like unique things here compared to the restrictive fluid group as additional rescue endpoints, including urine output that was less than 30 mLs per hour, uh, which is unique, and a heart rate greater than 110, which is different than the 130 that they had mentioned in the restrictive fluid group, uh, which could be in part secondary to use of, vaso, um, of vasoactive medications and vasopressors uh, kind of artificially or exogenously causing increases in the heart rate as is. Um, but this group was using the indication of a heart rate greater than 110 
in, um, which is a difference. The initiation requirement for vasopressors to maintain a systolic and MAP goals. Um, if they had no requirement for vasopressors to maintain systolic and MAP goals, um, they would limit the use of pressors. And if they were previously on at the initial randomization of this patient to the group, then they would be de-escalated. If they still had vasopressor requirements at that point in time, then they were uh, recommended to give a 500 ml bolus at that point in time. So if met the hemodynamic goals, then we'll start to scale down the vasopressors if they were on at the initiation of the randomization for this patient. If the vasopressors were on and they were not meeting their hemodynamic goals, then they would administer a bolus of 500 mLs of crystalloid as well. Rescue vasopressors were allowed if the severe hypotension is described above, if they had greater than five liters total of IV fluid at that point in time as well, or clinical manifestations of fluid overload um, in addition to the treating team just feeling like it was in the best interest of the patient. So a little bit of subjective criteria and then a little bit of the objective criteria as we discussed. And the protocol change in October 2019 um, basically allowed the clinicians to limit infusion <clears throat> and fluid bolus to one liter initially in this group if the blood pressure and heart rate stabilized. So if the um, blood pressure was 110 and greater systolic or a mean arterial pressure greater than or equal to 70 and a heart rate was less than 90, um, then you can perform a clinical assessment um, that indicates that the patient would be euvolemic um, in addition to sort of observational and clinical data at that time. And for all of these situations, um, despite the fairly specific criteria about how to proceed, um, at any point in time, the clinician could override the protocol if that was in the best interest of the patient. So the things that were just common between the two groups, um, you, they got really uh, hourly reassessments after interventions. The protocol could be, as we mentioned, overridden at any point in time if it was better for the patient. The assigned protocol was followed uh, relatively strictly with good compliance for 24 hours, and vasopressors were uh, frequently and typically uh, initially administered peripherally. There were 40% vasopressor use uh, frequency in the restrictive group and 25% in the liberal group had peripheral infusions of these. So moving on to outcomes, uh, the patient population that ultimately got included, um, kind of talking about the breakdown of people that were initially screened and then ultimately included in the study, there were about 12,000 patients, uh, roughly speaking, that met inclusion criteria. Then subsequently, about 4,800 actually met eligibility criteria and uh, went through the exclusion inclusion criteria process. And then subsequently, 1,563 were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion, and the protocol was followed for that 24-hour period. So the number separated out, there were 782 patients in the restrictive group and 781 in the liberal group. And then the comparison of the baseline characteristics of the restrictive versus the liberal groups, just to talk about how closely the patients were matched and how well, <clears throat> generally speaking, they were matched. Ages were relatively well matched, 59.1 um, years versus 59.9 uh, female populations were exactly the same, 47 and 47%. Heart failure was present in 10% of the liberal group and 13% of the restrictive group. And then ESRD with hemodialysis um, was fairly similar, 4 and 5% respectively. They also evaluated baseline SOFA score, which is very comparable at 3.4 versus 3.5. And then the initial systolic blood pressure being 93 versus 94 millimeters of mercury, which is very well, uh, very well matched and very close. Initial lactates were ultimately essentially the same, 2.9 and 2.9. The median time from eligibility to actual randomization of a patient was about one hour, so 60 minutes. Talking a little bit about the fluid before we get into the primary outcome, efficacy, and safety outcomes, 
the um, breakdown of the different kinds of fluid administrations and volumes are as follows. The median volume of fluid administered before randomization was about 2,050 milliliters versus 2,050 milliliters, so very similar. And the percent of patients with pressors at randomization was similar as well, between 21 in the restrictive, 21% in the restrictive group versus 18% in the liberal group. So fairly well matched there as well. And just an important consideration, uh, reminding ourselves that some of these patients did actually initially start on pressors, even if they were in the liberal fluid group. During the first six hours, IV fluid volumes were different. The median amounts between the two groups was 500 in the restrictive group. Um, versus 2,300 in the liberal group. So that ends up as a difference of about 1,800 milliliters between the group, which is a pretty significant amount of fluid thinking clinically what you're administering to patients. The cumulative fluid in 24 hours had a median of 1,267 milliliters in the restrictive group, and the liberal fluid group received about 3.4 liters, and that had a mean difference of 2,134 mLs. Um, And this was after randomization. But if we back up a little bit, include the pre-randomization plus randomization, the total involved a restrictive fluid group getting 3.3 liters and then the liberal fluid group getting 5.4 liters. Pressors were present uh, in any capacity and through any administration route in 59% of the restrictive group and then 37% of the liberal. They were initiated earlier and used for a longer uh, by about four hours in the restrictive fluid group as well. And the protocol adherence for all of this um, was remarkably high at 97% and the restricted in the 96% of the liberal. So intended the intervention they intended to perform was carried out faithfully. So moving on to the primary outcome as they had pre-specified, this was, again, death before discharge home by day 90. This was 14% in the restrictive group and 14.9% in the liberal group. And they included home as the place that they came from initially. So, for example, if a patient got discharged to a rehabilitation facility or something um, along those lines after being discharged from the hospital, that would not necessarily count. It would only count if they went back to their nursing home that they resided at previously before coming into the hospital. So just as a reminder about what that actually indicates. In efficacy and safety outcomes, um, there was no significant difference in several subgroups. There were no significant differences in days free from organ support therapy by day 28, days free from ventilator use at 28 days, considering the potential for volume overload impact on ability to wean from the ventilator and oxygenation requirements. No significant difference in days out of the ICU from day 1 to 28, days out of the hospital, and new intubation with mechanical ventilation by day 28 as well. There was no significant difference in ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome onset between day one and day seven. There's no significant difference between new onset atrial and ventricular arrhythmias or pressor and CVC complications between groups. In terms of serious adverse events, there were three versus zero in the restrictive versus liberal groups, uh, counts of extravasation of vasopressor, uh, which is an extremely low count if you think about the total number of patients. And this has been something that uh, in the emergency department has been fairly frequently used and is now more and more gathering some data to demonstrate safety and using peripheral vasopressors. 
other subgroup analyses. Um, there's no subgroup favored with liberal or restrictive fluid use with respect to a couple different uh, categories or subcategories. Um, this included age, sex, race, location at randomization, baseline systolic less than 90 or vasopressor use, or the specific sepsis-associated primary source suspected to be pneumonia. An interesting other point that they made in the paper, there were actually higher rates of ICU admission in the restrictive group, which makes sense because typically patients that are on vasopressors uh, don't end up with many other dispositions other than going to the ICU. Um, so in that first 24-hour period, um, this was 67% in the vasopressor or early um, vasopressor and restrictive fluid group versus 59% in the liberal group. And then closer to the one-week uh, mark, they became just um, a little bit different at 70% in the restrictive group versus 62% in the liberal group. So overall, um, what do we do with all this data? So I, I think there's a lot of really wonderful strengths about this paper. It's a high-quality paper and corroborates additional results that were uh, published in additional literature within the last year, uh, specifically kind of uh, sort of dovetailing off of the classic trial um, between this kind of focusing on the emergency department management uh, and initiation of treatment for septic shock associated hypotension or sepsis-associated hypotension versus the classic trial, which goes in a little bit more to the ICU venue. Uh, it's a randomized trial. It's multi-center, um, which adds to its strength as well. Um, what I will say are some, a couple thoughts that I had uh, thinking about some potential uh, downsides to the study, which is this includes all kind of forms of sepsis in patient populations that they certainly did some subgroup analyses on, but um, sepsis is such a nuanced disease and thinking about the different physiology and what different patients need based off of, you know, additional findings such as like echocardiography um, and, you know, arterial measurements and um, some other forms of non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring. I think it's it's important to see kind of our general effect in this sort of broad study, but it would be interesting to look a little bit further into certain uh, more specific subgroups and sepsis processes. Um, it is a little unfortunate this was terminated early, secondary to concerns about futility and lack of differences between the groups. But there are um, is so there's some question about whether we might see a different treatment effect with larger numbers, um, since there was a pretty significant uh, number of patients that were initially eligible, but unfortunately not ended up did not end up getting enrolled. There were several patients as well, a relatively large number, uh, looking at the other exclusions um, that did not get included in the study due to the primary provider uh, refusal to be included in the in the research. Uh, that was about 800 900 patients, 873 to be exact. And then I wonder a little bit as well about generalizability from a patient population standpoint. Based off of the initial data that they provided regarding their patient population, I, I wonder whether this is as representative of some of the sickest patients that we end up seeing in the emergency department or broadly mirrors the general population of very ill patients with sepsis-associated hypotension and septic shock, uh, given the mortality anticipated of about 15% versus some of the higher numbers quoted in some of the literature. There were not a lot of dynamic methods used to assess the fluid responsiveness as well, which is another, another consideration here. Um, and then, you know, in all of these studies, both classic trial and this one, um, the classic trial compared to standard of care. Um, and in this trial, there was a fair amount that was still left to clinician preference. So there's a fair amount of variability, even in with the restricted versus uh, liberal fluid group, about what the patient ended up actually getting. So I would be curious to see if there were 
a little bit more stringent or specific protocols that were maintained with less variability. Um, if there would be more differences that became more pronounced between these these separate groups um, that have, you know, ultimately fairly variant amounts of fluid that were administered. Um, and that's not even accounting for some of the baseline patient conditions and um, initiating processes. So overall, um, this is a nice trial that complements the classic trial that was published in last year really nicely and adds a different perspective starting a little bit early in the emergency department. It is helpful and that I think we still have uh, a fair amount of um, flexibility in being able to use fluids pretty liberally in the emergency department initially for patients to hopefully avoid initiation of vasopressors that otherwise may commit to high resource environments such as the ICU if they ultimately stabilize out after initial fluid resuscitation. Uh, I do think there's probably some more work to be done in the future to look a little bit further into specific subgroups and populations, um, but this is a wonderful piece of literature and a really well-done study um, that was exciting to read. I'm excited to see what comes out of this uh, general area of literature in the future.